The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? That was President Donald J. Trump, and this is Freedom's Call. Let freedom Welcome to Freedom's Call. And now, here's your host, Brett Sterley. You know, it's that time of year again whenever kids of all ages dress up to be people and things they are not the other 364 days of the year. You know, some popular choices are superheroes, villains, ghosts, demons, and tongue-in-cheek references. You know, kids go house to house or trunk to trunk, as it may be, uh, collecting all kinds of goodies that people are kind enough to provide. And I've always enjoyed Halloween when I was a child, and but things have changed drastically since then. We'd have a neighborhood group of about 10 kids, and we would head out and visit every house with a porch light on. Most times, this would be the only time of the year where we would actually frequent those homes. We had no idea who lived there. We did know that, we did know that this house made, always made popcorn balls. You know, the, the one across the street to the south would make caramel apples for us. And we had one family a couple blocks to the west of us who made homemade, homemade candy. Uh, they even had uh, homemade peanut butter cups, which one of my one of my faves. And I, I tried to hit that house twice, uh, if possible. Uh, I got busted every single time, but I uh, would always get an extra peanut butter cup. And just uh, the, the, uh, the mother there would just kind of give me a little, little wry smile. But, you know, we, we would go out and we would trick-or-treat probably five, six blocks, just wait until we kind of got tired, hitting every house with the porch light on, and then just make a big circle back. Like I said, I mean, these, these were homes that, you know, we, we never visited them any other time of the year, had no idea who in the world lived there. And, well, obviously times have changed, and, and now we, we mainly, you know, take our kids to, to close family members' homes or, you know, homes of very, very close friends. You know, taking homemade items or is, is virtually out of the question. And even if we treat, trick or treat homes that we know well, most of us have a passing thought of having the candy x-rayed before our kids start eating it. And it, it's sad that my son and kids nowadays, you know, never had the experiences I was able to have as a child. And I am sure many parents said the same thing when I was growing up. Now, I can't say that I would have missed getting up at 4 a.m. to milk the cows before walking to school waist deep in snow in an uphill both ways at that. But I'm sure that that was still said back in back in my my, uh, you know, by my parents. You know, our elected officials are debating another massive spending bill to, quote unquote, help people. They frame it in a way that this is in the spirit of the kindness and charity. You know, just like the home, the just like the family's homes, we trick or treat on Halloween. We've even been told it costs zero dollars. You know how stupid do they think we are? Well, pretty stupid as it turns out. You know, there's a major difference between what Washington D.C. considers to be charity and actual charity. The homes we trick or treat are providing candy by choice. 
This is true charity, individuals making a conscious decision to use their personal property and provide for others. Government, on the other hand, generates nothing. The only money they have is what they take from private citizens, borrow, or print. The only funds that exist are what they take from private, the only actual funds that exist are what they take from private individuals. The federal government borrows from itself, purchasing our own debt with promises to pay at a later date with other money that is likely borrowed or printed. This is not charity. This is forced redistribution. Constitutionalists are not anti-government as some choose to portray us. We have no issue with funding the legitimate enumerated powers that the Constitution gives the federal government. The remaining responsibilities belong to the people or the states. The federal government's responsibilities are specific and limited. The states are numerous and indefinite. It's that way on purpose. We are so far afield from that currently, and we have been for decades, and it's only getting worse. This is true whether Republicans or Democrats control Congress or the White House. Party affiliation makes no difference whatsoever. And one of the main reasons for that is that spending money and bringing, bringing the goodies back home to, the, to, uh, to your home district, you know, that, those are ways to get votes. Those are ways to secure power, to increase your endearment to your constituents, and make sure that you have a, a career being a politician in a job that's not designed to be a career role. So, you know, the framers called upon their contemporaries and future generations to be educated, self-governing citizens. That is our duty. Now, are, are we winning? Maybe not currently, but I do believe the tide is turning. The victories for liberty are beginning to roll in. For example, Southwest Airlines backed off placing employees on unpaid leave after their mandatory vaccination policy. And in just an, 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 amazing, um, an, an amazing show of, of, of courage, in my opinion, Dan Bongino issued an ultimatum to, his broad, to the broadcaster of his radio show. He said, you can have me or you can have the mandate. Let's take a listen to that clip here right now. Imagine the countless number of individuals trying to explain to these companies ever thought of that. The countless numbers of moms and dads who are sitting at some kitchen table explaining to their kids how they may have to move out, how daddy doesn't have a job because a bunch of people in a C-suite thought it'd be a good idea to sit around and play pretend Dr. Fauci for a moment and mandate people jam something in their bodies that they don't want to take. You ever put yourself in that, in that role? You ever put yourself at that kitchen table with mom and dad telling their kids that? Imagine how the kids respond, that fear they got to live with. You know, I grew up without a lot of money. My mom used to make bologna sandwiches for dinner. And when the bologna was no good, you'd cook it and you'd make it good right quick, right? I'm not leaving any of those guys behind. You can have me or you can have the mandate. But you can't have both of them. Now that is pretty amazing, you know. Dan Bongino, he he is he is sacrificed. You know, it's it's not like, you know, he he does have Rush Limbaugh's time slot, but it wasn't. It's not like that he's established like Rush Limbaugh was. You know, he is just now um, found his place in 
in the media, uh, found his sweet spot, and is now getting to the point to where he is, um, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with, and he's and he's definitely building up his uh, his credibility as a commentator, and also expanding his universe of uh, of radio stations that carry his show, and so. If there's anybody that's really in the position to where, hey, you know, I'm not going to make any waves. Um, you know, he has been fully vaccinated uh, coming off of a, a cancer diagnosis. So he's been fully vaccinated. He's not an anti-vax person. He is a pro-choice person, as I'm a pro-choice person. You know, take the information that that's available, you know, that's as objective as possible that's not you know polluted by politics or uh any type of uh you know popular narrative or anything like that you know let's you know take that information consult with your own physician and then make a decision that's best for yourself you know that is completely reasonable and that is exactly what dan bonagino what dan bonagino is advocating for so It'll be, uh, you know, I, I just think that's just a just a, a tremendous uh, stance uh, that Dan Bongino has taken, and you know the bottom line is I believe that liberty and freedom will win in the end. I 100% believe that. It takes active, self-governing citizens to make that happen. The founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to each other. Now let's renew that commitment and let's take our country back. We will be right back. This public affairs moment is presented by the conventionofstates.com. As loving parents, we work hard in order to give our children a quality education. We would go to extremes to give them that bright future they so richly deserve. If you're a parent with a huge interest in the future of your children, then you need to hear this. This is a public affairs moment from conventionofstates.com. What does your child know about American history, American civics, or our Constitution? Shockingly, most children have no idea about the answer. And you can't blame them. We've placed less emphasis on the history of our country. And surprisingly enough, our leaders don't care. There's a rich chance to grant your children the opportunity to learn about a fantastic part of American history. It talks about a smart move by the founders to reset the Constitution in case anything goes wrong with Article 5. If you're curious, visit conventionofstates.com to satisfy that curiosity. Welcome back to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, KEYK 89.3 FM, Lake of the Ozarks. I'm Brett Sterling, your host, and just as a reminder, if you want to interact with the show, uh, please give us an e- uh, send us an email at freedomscall89.3 at gmail.com. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-M-S-C-A-L-L 89.3 at gmail.com. So before the break, you know, we listened to that clip from Dan Bongino, and it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what uh, what Cumulus Radio does in response to his um, ultimatum. Now, will they bow to the pressure, you know, to pressure on social media and from the federal government? And just keep in mind that this mandate from Joe Biden is a proposed OSHA rule that's under a 90-day review period. There is nothing set in stone, and if that would ever happen, it would be in court immediately. 
So there is no there's no binding policy, no binding um, uh, policy from the government or law that is causing companies to do this. You know, they're doing it on their own volition. Now, why would individuals who have wildly benefited from the American free market system seemingly embrace the less leftist class warfare narrative? First, I think it's a move to insulate themselves from the woke cancel culture outrage. Now, there is this illusion that Twitter is somehow reality. I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth, but it seems like it is. You know, social media can spread narratives exponentially across the globe in a, in a moment. You know, cancel culture can act on these posts and cast a company in a virtual purgatory in an instant. In an instant. You know, by seemingly to agree with the anti-capitalist mantra and attacking success, you know, these business people and companies are granted, dare I say, immunity from social outrage. I believe this is also a conscious effort on their part to eliminate competition. You know, by advocating for, you know, higher taxes, especially higher taxes on capital formation and investment, established business owners can protect their turf. What could be better for them than removing a rung or two out of the ladder success for others? You know, it's bad enough whenever the private sector acts in this manner. The marketplace is so diverse and fragmented, it's difficult for an individual business decision to affect a major segment of business. It's quite another whenever the federal government makes such a decision. Decisions at that level affect wide swaths of the economy. When those policies cause harm or market dislocations, as they almost always do, there is no room for escape. When we come back, we're going to be joined with Representative Bill Owen from Missouri's 131st District. So we'll be right back. This message from conventionsofstates.com will scare the heck out of the career politicians that need to go home and retire. Nine senators and congressmen have occupied their seats for over 40 years, but there is a remedy. The solution lies in the power of the people. According to Article 5 of the Constitution, the people possess the power to call a convention of states to amend the Constitution and limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government impose fiscal restraints, and place term limits on federal officials. Basically, it's simple. 34 states are needed to call a convention, and 38 states are enough to ratify the amendments proposed. This convention of states is the last and most effective option left. It's the only way our voices can be heard. It's time we start screaming together. We need to secure our future and the future of our children. Join the movement. For more information, visit conventionofstates.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Freedom's Call here on Key Radio KEYK 89.3 FM, Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, we are joined here by uh, Representative Bill Owen from the 131st District in Missouri. And Representative Owen, thank you very much for joining us here on Freedom's Call. Brett, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Can you can you describe you know the 131st district? What uh, what all area does that entail, and and what are some of the demographics in your in your area? Uh, yeah, Brett. Yeah, we're, we're totally uh, contained within Greene County. I have the very northern tip of Springfield. If anyone listening is familiar with Springfield and knows where 
say Commercial Street is and the Burlington Northern Santa Fe tracks that just run parallel to the north of Commercial Street, that is my southern boundary. Uh, and then I go north all the way to the Polk County line. And then my eastern boundary <clears throat> is just slightly west of uh, 65 Highway. And I run all the way out west to the uh, city limits of Willard. Oh, the demographics is it's, it's, it's varied. I mean, I have some uh, uh, low to moderate income census tracts in North Springfield. Uh, I have a lot of suburban, got a lot of ag. And, uh, and then also have the 10th largest home in America. So I've got a little bit of everything. Well, it really truly sounds like a melting pot. It, it's definitely not homogeneous. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. You had previously served in the, uh, in the state legislature. Uh, now, wh- when, when, was your, uh, when was your first tenure uh, in, in Jeff City? I, I was I was elected in 1980. I came in when Ronald Reagan came in the first time, okay. um, and and so I started serving in January of uh, 1981. I was 27 years old at the time. Wow. Now, what what got you interested in politics? What did had you had you had aspirations to be to run for political office, or or how'd that happen? You know, I, I don't know that I necessarily had aspirations to run. I just was interested in, in, in my community, government, the nation, you know, just trying to be a good citizen. Uh, and, and I, and I in, in high school and college, I was involved in speech and debate. And so, you know, debating issues and all that just kind of uh, was something I enjoyed. And uh it, it really boiled down to we we had uh, someone who was uh, representing this was this would have been the 149th district and it was a much different district than the one I've got now it it actually was Center City Springfield and uh, the square uh, was my north boundary and and I went down to around uh, you know Ch- uh, Cher- Cherokee and Seminole on the south and National on the east and and Hazeltine Road out west and and uh, uh, but we had a guy in there who uh, was very liberal. He was, he was a Democrat that had knocked off the Republican incumbent. And I had a number of people uh, encourage me to, uh, to jump in there against him. And uh, I had, was very early in my banking career. And uh, uh, the bank said, you know, I think we can, we can spare you uh, during the times you'd need to be in Jeff City and, and you can continue to work here. And it just you know, it all just kind of fit in together. Uh, fortunately, at the time, I was I was still single. I don't know if I could have handled both jobs uh, uh, and been raising a family at the same time. But it, but for the situation I was in, it, it it worked it worked pretty good. Well, that's that's great. I mean, that's a, that's a great story. It's really nice that you were able to to get everything to work out that way. And and really, probably back in the 1980s, it was it was maybe a little bit rare uh, for a a, a company to be that lenient and try to do almost like kind of like a flexible type schedule. What, you know, a lot of, a lot of what has become commonplace here now, but it, I imagine that was probably pretty unique back in that period of time. You know, I, I really, I've never really given that a lot of thought, but you're probably right. I mean, I, as I just now sit here and start thinking about some of the people I served with, you know, unless they were, unless they were um, uh, in, in their own business, like um, an attorney or an insurance agent or something like that, you're right. It, there probably weren't a lot of others that were working for for someone else and and were able to to work that that arrangement out. Being a being a freshman 
a freshman legislator, you know, the second time around here, um, what, what are some of the differences in the dynamics up in Jefferson City, you know, with, within, just say, let's start within the caucus? Um, well, I mean, the, the most, the, the, the biggest difference is uh, I went from a caucus of uh, 56 to a caucus of 112. So, you know, we went from a very, very significant minority to a very significant majority. And, and the difference is, is like night and day. Um, so that, that, that clearly would be number one. I, I came in just at the start of Bob Griffin's tenure as speaker, who, you know, as you know, was the longest serving speaker. And uh, he, uh, he ran a, a pretty tight ship. Uh, uh, you know, there, there wasn't. Uh, you, know, you you stayed in line if you were part of his caucus or or there were consequences, and um, and so you know it, it was it was a lot more structured. Everybody, you know, s- you know, stayed in their lane because they didn't want to get crossways with the speaker. And then of course our group. I mean, when you've only got fifty six, you got you got to work as a team because uh, uh, you're kind of limited on on what your successes are. And many times your successes are measured a lot differently than you know, bills passed or what have you. It's more like, what did I stop? You know, what, what was I able to, uh, you know, uh, amend on to something to make it better? You know, those, those were your, those were your victories, not, not how many bills I got passed. Sure. No, that's totally, that's totally understandable. Now that was, that was pre-term limits. Is that correct? Yes, it sure was. Okay. Yeah. So I still, I, I, I have the opportunity to, to serve for, for four terms. Um, uh, that doesn't count towards towards the amount of uh, service. So, what uh, what are some of your legislative focuses? Um, you know that you have here uh, now, and in committees that you serve on. Well, uh, you know, after spending forty years in in financial institutions, uh, you know, banking is is kind of my forte, and so that that I have a lot of interest there, and you know, was very active this this past year on uh, all five of the, the bank bills that passed. Uh, one of them I sponsored and the others I was involved with. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've been in an organization where, uh, or actually multiple organizations, you know, where, you know, structure is very important. And, you know, I just, I just see some things that we can maybe do uh, within the caucus. And then, then really how we, how we function as, as a state government that 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 could be changed and improved. Um, I'm I'm still bewildered that we've got a 35 billion dollar budget, and we do no outside forensic auditing. And it's just um, you know uh, how in the world we can spend that kind of money and really have absolutely no idea if it's been spent in the best manner or not. Uh, and I've been encouraging my colleagues and I will continue to encourage them to, to look at bringing in some outside accounting firms to really dig deep into these departments and, and really see how we're spending the money and, and you get their recommendations on improvements uh, to how we can be more efficient and, and get, get, you know, a better bang for our buck. Uh, You know, it's one thing to sit there and say, well, I'm against tax increases, but, you know, if, if you're spending the, the money poorly, it really doesn't matter. I mean, that to me, that's more important than, you know, whether you've, you know, raised taxes or not. It's, it's are, are we giving the citizens the best bang for their buck? And I think 
during my time here, I, I hope that, that that I'll look back and say, well, I was able to make some major progress in those areas. Uh, also, as, as I've been delving into, uh, I, I was, uh, uh, by the speaker, I was put on uh, uh, on a committee that, that to, to look out for, to, to issues down the road. And, and one of the things we've got going now, particularly with all the federal monies that are apparently are going to be coming down, is is looking at our uh, computer systems in the state and the software. And it's just the, the more we dug into it, the, the more it was just it was stunning um, how bad our computer systems and our software systems are uh, in the state. And so that's going to take another uh, a major effort to to uh, to to upgrade all of that, and we can hopefully operate so much more efficiently. One thing that is amazing, and, and at one point during the the the, the debate on uh, on the budget, um, I got a little tired of of, of the other side, you know, uh, beating up on the budget chair and and in our caucus that we just weren't spending enough. That I got up there and reminded them that in 1982 the entire state operating budget was 4.1 billion dollars, and now it's 35, and we're not spending enough money. Wow, that's 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 a little uh, perspective there that uh, not a, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure they weren't ex- expecting, but no. And, I, and in case any of them question, I said I've got my uh, got my constituent newsletter from 1982 <laughs> up in my desk. I brought it to Jeff City, figuring somebody would question me on it, and I'll be more than happy to provide it. But yeah, that was the entire state operating budget in 1982 was 4.1 billion, and now we're at 35. So we're almost what almost 900 percent increase over that 38 year or 39 year period of time. <laughs>